0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Facilitating Cognitive Assessment in Primary Care for the Timely Detection of Alzheimer's Disease, Leveraging Medicare Reimbursement Mechanisms to Improve Clinical Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash XUM860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to facilitating cognitive assessment in primary care for the timely detection of Alzheimer's disease. And this evening, we're hoping to help you understand how to leverage some of the Medicare reimbursement mechanisms to improve clinical care. Um, I'm Anna Chodos. I'm here with my colleague, Dr. Ian Neal, and we're your panelists and co chairs for this course. Good evening. So our goals for today, I wanna say big picture, the slides will be really helpful, uh, particularly as a reference point. We have a lot of information that we packed in there so that you can go back to it and really support your practice over time. And so verbally, we're really gonna highlight the takeaways, the main points on each slide. And so we want those to be there for you. And our goals are gonna be to equip you with skills to help integrate routine cognitive assessment into healthcare visits for older adults with signs of cognitive impairment, to provide guidance on best practices for documenting and coding cognitive assessments and services, and to offer strategies to effectively communicate with patients and caregivers about cognitive assessment results. So this is me, I work in San Francisco at the University of San Francisco and clinically I practice at San Francisco General. I'm a geriatrician and internist and I do consult geriatrics and dementia care. And so we're gonna jump right in. Um, I think the first thing we wanna establish is what is dementia? We use the term a lot, and I think sometimes we're using the same word to mean different things, but the very basics here are the definition. The definition is in the DSM-5, and it's a syndrome. I think that's one thing to take away from this lecture that dementia is a syndrome we can often recognize even if we don't yet know the cause or the underlying disease. And it's defined by recognizing and identifying an acquired cognitive decline in at least one domain of cognition. So note, this is a change from prior definitions where memory impairment was a, a required domain. So this is a cognitive decline in at least one domain, if not more, and an acquired functional decline. And Ian and myself, as geriatricians, I think we're both acutely aware that function is super important, and we really want to elevate the importance of this in a dementia assessment because it's actually one of the core criteria that we have detected and found evidence for functional decline. The other piece that I think many of us are very good at and very skilled at is identifying medical and potentially psychiatric contributors or causes that may be having an impact. Very rarely are we finding something that's truly causing in full, the syndrome in front of us, but we may be identifying multiple contributors or other aspects of that person's presentation. So basic definition, acquired cognitive decline in one or more domain acquired functional decline and no other clear, truly causal uh, reason. Where does this sit in the Spectrum of types of cognitive decline. One thing is, if we're doing more detection, if we're being more rigorous about looking for these symptoms, we may find more than just dementia. We may find mild cognitive impairment, and we may even find age related decline, right, in older folks. So, dementia, as we just mentioned, is an abnormal decline in cognitive functioning compared to other people normed for their age and education level, for example and it affects daily functioning those are the core criteria mild cognitive impairment on the other hand we may be detecting abnormal cognitive function in one or more domain but we we have yet to see cognitive impairment i mean excuse me functional impairment and then age related decline of course is very relevant it may be very symptomatic the brain changes with age as do all of the organs in some ways getting We would uh, have heightened abilities and other ways having reduced abilities compared to earlier in life. But in these cases, it's within the realm of normal when we do either objective testing or when we really probe symptoms, and it's not affecting daily functioning. So that really needs to be separated out in our minds clinically from the other conditions of MCI and dementia, which are more veering into abnormal cognitive decline. The other thing to know is increasingly we'll be using the terms, which are now the formal terms in the DSM, of mild and major neurocognitive disorder. One, the nice thing about this is it finally connects the two, that mild neurocognitive disorder really is a preclinical stage to major neurocognitive disorder. So MCI is preclinical stage of dementia. Um, and to just point out that, you know, these are related on the spectrum. So I think you'll, you'll be hearing these terms I think, more regularly used going forward. Not in our presentation, of course, but in the future. Um, And then the other thing is we use dementia a lot to refer to the disease that's causing the syndrome we're seeing, when really a lot of times, as I already mentioned, we can really pick up on the syndrome that's happening, that there's an abnormal decline in cognition, abnormal decline in function, and not yet know the cause. And it's okay to actually diagnose the syndrome and communicate with our patients that we're still looking into what is causing these declines. We know it's an umbrella term and that the underlying disorders, the most prevalent ones, are the ones you see here in front of you. Alzheimer's disease is still the most common underlying etiology of a dementia syndrome. Second is vascular, and often we have people with both. Um, Lewy body dementia and frontal temporal dementia Unfortunately, dementia is in the term there, it's the way it is, but um, are also very common causes. And why are we talking about it this evening? Why is this of increasing importance going forward? It's very highly associated with age, we know, and about 11% of the U.S. population over 65 has dementia due to Alzheimer's disease, so that doesn't even include the other etiologies. And this affects many millions of Americans, and we expect this to increase with an aging population. Obviously, we have a lot of information here, but the really big take-homes I want you to get from this slide are that we have major gender, racial, and ethnic disparities in prevalence and in detection. So the big, big message really is we have terrible detection of this condition and its underlying causes overall. So about 60% of Alzheimer's disease is underdiagnosed in high income countries like um, peer nations, we can say. And that seems to hold true in the United States as well, about 50 to 60% of dementia due to Alzheimer's disease seems undiagnosed or undocumented. But then we know that this condition is also disproportionately affecting certain groups. More women are affected by Alzheimer's disease, more people who identify as black Latinx or Hispanic are affected by this disease. And then we also know that in those minoritized populations that they are often detected even less often and have less comprehensive care when they are detected. So with all the focus that we have of late on really addressing reducing health disparities, this is a very important area for us to be considering how can our practice contribute to better detection So now we're going to focus on clinical assessment. First, I'm going to talk about screening, and then Dr. Neal is going to talk more about the comprehensive assessment after we do a screening. And I want to really focus on some opportunities we have to do more routine screening on this issue. And why do it? Screening is tricky in dementia, and many of us have different, uh, I would say, opinions really about it. But I think it's getting more and more common to consider screening as a practical approach for lots of reasons. One, we know that when it's underdiagnosed and underdetected, it's affecting the whole person, and it's affecting our management of many other chronic conditions. It allows the patient and us to make shared decisions with more information on the table. It helps us to structure a more practical and appropriate medication regimen for all the things they've got going on, but also in the case now of evolving disease-modifying therapies, the DMTs that you see abbreviated here we know that those medications are most effective at the earliest stages of dementia and even into mild cognitive impairment or minor neurocognitive disorder. So a screening approach would really help us move the needle earlier. It helps us start to engage the person's support network and put through and engage specialists, community resources, all the things that help us prevent sort of crisis moments later on in the course of this condition. And then... Really, we lose opportunities for other evidence-based strategies to support brain health. What that really means is reducing progression and reducing prevalence of dementia overall in older adults uh, when we aren't really using a preventive and screening approach. So the modifiable risk factors, there are about 12, and you see them listed here, that influence preventing dementia through either, we think, reducing neuropathological damage through all of the proteins that build up in the various causes uh, underlying neurodegenerative diseases of dementia, and also by improving cognitive reserve overall and resiliency, cognitive resiliency. So you see them here, and a lot of these I think we're already working on treating diabetes, hypertension, preventing injury, encouraging people to stop smoking and avoiding excessive alcohol addressing depression in midlife, encouraging exercise. These are all the things we're working on with folks, right? I think things that maybe we're doing a little less of, so levels of education very early in life affect um, later risk of dementia, and that's a little hard for us often to address in adult medicine. But things like hearing impairment, midlife hearing impairment, is essentially the strongest midlife risk factor for developing dementia. So early detection of hearing impairment is probably um, a really important target, as well as improving social opportunities for social engagement. And then we have the things that slow down progression when people have symptoms, and a lot of them are the same as the ones I just showed you. So I have a really basic way clinically myself of thinking about supporting a brain health plan, and it's correcting hearing and vision. Vision turns out is important for when people have corrected vision, it slows progression, but also prevents falls, which we know is a major risk factor for head injury. Reducing anticholinergic burden and sedative burden in medications has a huge impact on progression, social and physical activity, and managing blood pressure and diabetes, which I know is already a very strong suit of many of us in uh, primary care and adult medicine. So what do we do? How could we possibly do this? How could we incorporate a screen? When we're talking about Medicare, we're really talking about opportunities with the initial, um, the welcome to Medicare visit and the annual wellness visit. And so we'll talk quickly about how to incorporate that and how to use the codes for that. The other thing I just wanted to present to you is kind of a practical approach Is something we call the cognitive health assessment. And I don't know how many of you practice in California, but this is something that Medi-Cal, our state Medicaid program put forth this year. And it's a focused cognitive screen For older adults, it's meant to be an annual screen for people who don't already have a diagnosis of dementia to just start the process of detecting dementia and getting getting them on the path to a next-level assessment. Both the elements of the annual wellness visit and the cognitive health assessment can be done by your team, which is wonderful. Of course, we all need time extenders, and we need to work with our teams in clinic. And then I'll just briefly summarize the cognitive health assessment, and then we're going to, go, going to go through a case. And you could use the elements of the cognitive health assessment as pieces of your medical, uh, medical Medicare annual wellness visit as well. So the first part of the cognitive health assessment is to take a brief patient history. That's literally often a question. Are you having any symptoms of memory decline? Yes, no. Use screening tools to assess for cognition and function. And then document care partner information. The other way I think about it is... We want to know a little something about the head, what's going on cognitively. We want to know what's going on functionally, the arms, and we want to know about their support system, the legs. Because that support system, as many of us know, and if it's not there, it's also super important to know, is going to be really important if symptoms progress as we take care of the whole person. Really briefly, there's an opportunity for more free CME and MOC credits. Um, there's a training available at dementiacareware.org on the cognitive health assessment. And again, this is a Medi-Cal program um, promoting this screen for Medi-Cal and dual eligible patients. And we're going to walk through it with a case. So my patient today is Harold Sandoval, 70 years old who's coming in for his Medicare annual wellness visit into our clinic, and he's accompanied by his daughter, Jacqueline. His daughter expresses concern that Harold increasingly seems to be having trouble remembering the names of acquaintances at church. This used to be a real strength of him, of his, so this was really noticeable for her. So this, if I were doing a cognitive health assessment, history is done. Either the patient or an informant can give me a sign or a symptom. I could notice a sign, like very frequent um, you know, every time they come in, it, they don't remember what we talked about with medication changes the last time. That could be a positive history. But in this case, it's a report from an informant. Um, and I just gave you what I just mentioned uh, in the last slide, that you could, it could be incorporated into a health risk assessment or other surveys you're routinely giving people, or it could be a noted sign or symptom by you or somebody else. And then I would want to apply a screening tool. So step one was done. What tools would I use? I'm sure many of you are, have your go-to screening tool. And I do think that it makes a lot of sense to think about what works for you, what you know, what you like to use, and what works for your patients. I have a patient population that if I gave them all Montreal Cognitive Assessments, the MOCA, they would, like, no one, everyone screens positive. So I don't really sort, uh, you know, people having real symptoms versus not. There are a couple tools that you could use, and what we recommend in the toolbox is you could actually think about applying tools or using your informant to extend your time a little bit and do the tools for you, or you could give them to the patient. And the two pieces of information you want, remember, again, are cognition and function. So you could use a mini-cog tool and this thing called an FAQ, which is um, a care partner-administered functional screening tool, you could use something called the GP COG, I don't know if anybody's from Australia, it was developed in Australia in primary care, and the first, right in the second row here, um, it was developed uh, there for, in, for general practice, and it's like the mini COG with a couple extra elements, and then it prompts you on the second page to ask about function, that's, for me in our clinic, we often use that one because it reminds people to go to that next step. But again, let me show you some examples. And you have this toolbox to refer to in your slides. Um, so the mini-cog I'll show you in a little more detail in a second. And then another cognitive screening tool which you can give to an informant, very commonly used, is the AD8. And it's eight questions meant to be given to an informant to tell you about the patient's cognition. And the sensitivity and specificity of these tools really compare pretty well to the MMSE and are a lot shorter. Um, the mini cog, as many of you know, is a three-item recall, which means I read you a word list, you repeat it back so I know you heard me, and then a clock draw. The instructions are there on the sheet if you print it out, so I won't belabor them too much. But the clock draw, mostly you want to ask people to put all the numbers where they belong. When they're done with that, you tell them to put the hands at 10 past 11 and then when they're done, you ask them to recall the three words, and you score it. They get a point for each word, and unfortunately, the clock is all or nothing. So if they do beautiful numbers but mess up the hands, it's a zero. So that's one tool. The 88 is to the informant, and two or more positive answers is a positive screen. And again, that is on the tool so you can remember uh, how to score it. And then the functional abilities very often... The, uh, there were these validated uh, instruments for informants, but for patients, we often just ask, how do you do your ADLs, how do you do your IADLs? And any positive response would be considered a positive re- re- uh, screen, meaning any indication they need help. And then finally, documenting care partner information. This need not be an advanced care planning discussion, top to bottom. Really, who's in your life that supports you with medical care? Who helps you with caregiving? Do you actually have a formal documented healthcare agent? All of these could be the question you ask to get some information about care partner and documenting it in the chart. And really the idea is any of these things, we have a lot, we don't have perfect screening tools. So triangulating these symptoms, any positive symptom, any positive cognitive screen, any positive functional screen, again, we're just sorting people into higher likelihood of having something real going on versus not. And we want to plan a next steps visit, what my colleague is going to go over on the Cognitive Assessment and Care Plan Services Medicare visit. And it's an opportunity to start a brain health plan. So even if we're saying, we picked up on this stuff, we have another visit to go a little deeper, which is great. And there are some things we can do. We can lower your you know, trazodone or rejigger your this or that or get you a hearing test scheduled. Okay, so I'll briefly go over the case to see how my patient, Mr. Sandoval, did. He scored one out of five on his mini-cog, so that was positive in addition to his positive symptoms. On the 88, he screened negative based on a report from his daughter. He was independent in ADLs but needed some help for IDLs, so that was a positive functional screen. And then... I documented that Jacqueline is his support person with their permission. And I disclosed to him that, hey, we found some symptoms that your daughter reported. You had a little trouble with the clock and the recall. This warrants another visit to really go more in-depth. So we schedule a follow-up visit. And the real point I want to make about communicating results is that, disclose what you know. I usually walk through what I'm thinking, which is, What symptoms are you having? What am I seeing on testing? Where does this take us next? And at this stage, I certainly would not say, you have dementia. Um, That is something that would come after more involved assessment of sort of overall picture. Okay, and then the points here for your reference that you can go back to are really, when can we use the codes for the annual wellness visit to incorporate this screening? And when do we use the subsequent visits? And when do we use the Welcome to Medicare visit code. If you're in California and you are seeing medi only older adults, we have this new code associated with the Cognitive Health Assessment and Dementia Care Aware provides all the guidance for that. But fortunately, we have some time. We're going to schedule our patient back in two to three months and they're going to see Dr. Neal.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Chodos, <clears throat> and kudos to Dr. Chodos for uh, giving a uh, very comprehensive assessment of how to do a screening visit, an overview of dementia in only 20 minutes. That was very impressive. Uh, that was an hour lecture you just got there. Now for the second hour of lecture I <laughs> uh, we'll try to make enough time for it, is how to do <clears throat> what's called the Cognitive Assessment and Care Plan. Uh, this is a uh, Medicare billing code that you can use to kind of more effectively And more comprehensively, do a diagnostic dementia visit. Um, Because everything that we just talked about was how to screen for cognitive impairment. But if somebody screens positive, then the next step is that you have to see them back for a more in-depth assessment and diagnostic visit. I always say you can't diagnose dementia on a single visit. It's all about trend, changes over time, and uh, uh, collecting data to try to understand exactly what's going on here. And so the diagnostic visit is... uh, Um, a lot more involved than the screening visit. Um, And the Cognitive Assessment and Care Plan is really there to try to help leverage Medicare to adequately, or as adequately as Medicare will let us, be reimbursed for the uh, uh, level of work that we do in a diagnostic visit. Um, This uh, care plan um, uh, has its own CPT code, 99483, and it can be used once every 180 days um, for a patient, and it's really meant to comprehensively cover the diagnosis of cognitive impairment. Hold on to your seats, there's a lot that's involved with it. Um, There are 10 different elements that are involved in the cognitive assessment and care plan. This slide goes over all of them and we're gonna go into depth onto each of these 10 points and what's really involved. Um, As you can see here, it's a lot. The real thing that I would do if I saw a slide like that is I'd walk out of the room. You expect me to do all of that in a single patient visit? It's impossible. Um, But don't worry, you can split this up um, over a period of time. As long as the elements that are involved in these 10 steps have been done within the uh, uh, coverage period and are still relevant at the time that you submit the CPT code, they count for that CPT code. So you can fragment this over visits. And actually, a lot of the things that you do in the screening visit – for some of the elements of this visit. So it's kind of additive, and it's a way to provide a summary of everything that we can do. The other thing is that if you're lucky enough to have good assistance in your clinic, um, not all of this has to be done by the physician. Uh, uh, Clinical team members can help with some of these elements. What are all of these 10 elements of the diagnostic visit? Um, Step one, and I really say the most important element of the diagnostic visit, is to do a cognitive-focused evaluation. You know, dementia or major minor neurocognitive disorder it's a clinical diagnosis. It always has been and it always will be. It's a matter of detailing what the patient's history is and what their objective findings are. So everything boils down to the good old-fashioned history and examination. Um, when we're doing the diagnostic workup for dementia, though, um, there's a few key elements that we really want to incorporate into that history and examination. The de- first up is a detailed history, really assessing and digging down deep into what the cognitive problems the patient may or may not be having is, and how, if at all, do these cognitive problems translate into functional deficits? Um, because again, as Dr. Choto said, geriatrics is all about function. If it's not affecting your function, it's not as concerning of a disease. We really want to assess, is this affecting function or not? Um, it, there are a few tools that you can use to try to help with getting that detailed history um, things like the IQ code or the QDRS or the AD8. These are just tools, though. Nothing trumps sitting down and talking with the patient and, most importantly, talking with the informant because the hallmark of cognitive impairment is a agnosia. They don't know what they don't know. So the patients frequently give you the report of, I don't have any memory problems, but the truth comes out when the family members are there. So I always recommend bringing an informant to the, uh, uh, to the diagnostic visit. The neurologic exam is probably the most important part of the physical exam for doing a diagnostic visit, uh, really looking for signs of uh, subcapsular disease, signs of Parkinsonism, rigidity, gait instability, things like that, that could start leveraging you one way or another in terms of what type of dementia the patient may have. Um, But of course, a comprehensive exam is important, cardiovascular especially, uh, given the vascular risk factors that could go into a dementia diagnosis. And also, um, I always tell my patients when they see me in clinic, you can't see a memory doc without getting a memory test. So doing a a uh, mental status exam with uh, formal cognitive test is important. Um, uh, we mentioned earlier things like the mini-cog. Those are really screening tools. And while they have sensitivity and specificity for detecting disease, they're insufficient to make the diagnosis. And so to make the diagnosis, you really need additional testing that's more comprehensive. And there are lots of tools out there that exist, be it the MOCA the QMCI, the MMSE, the slums. Uh, Going back to Australia again, there's a new one that's coming out there that's pretty promising called the RUDAS. Um, There are lots of tools that are available. The key is to pick one that you're comfortable with and, chew, and do that um, because what we find is that you can't compare one test to another. So just because you score one way on a MOCA doesn't mean you'll score one way on an MMSE. We do find that people score better on the MMSE than they do on the MOCA or SLUMs. But since you can't compare test to test, it's recommended to stick with one test uh, to serial track patients over time. This is an example of what the MOCA looks like. Um, it's one of the more common ones that's used. Um, a caveat with the MOCA as well as with the MMSC is that uh, they do have some uh, costs associated with them. The MMSC technically is copyrighted, and you're supposed to pay to download it uh, uh, from their website. The MOCA is uh, technically free, but they do require credentialing now, um, and that's a fee they have to pay every couple of years to be credentialed in the MOCA. Um, the slums, the rudas, things like that are free. Um, but choose one and use it. Another thing is that you'll notice on all these tests that it has a score range on it, and it'll tell you, like, 26 and higher is normal. 21 to 26 is mild cognitive impairment. 18 to 21 is mild dementia. That's bogus. You know, a score on the MOCA doesn't diagnose dementia. A score is just one element of the history and the physical that helps sway you of, is this dementia, isn't it? So... Uh, there are lots of things that could factor into the uh, cognitive test scores. So again, just remember, you can't diagnose dementia just on performance on a MOCA or a Slums uh, or an MMSE. It really requires that history, that physical exam, the understanding of the, transi- the transition of the disease over time to make that diagnosis. Um, Step two in the CACP is to document medical decision-making. They require that you document at least moderate to high level of complexity in medical decision-making by ENEM guidelines. Um, We mention it just because it's one of the requirements. It's one of the less important ones. Um, You can read more about it there. Step three is that you have to document a patient's functional assessment Um, because, again, it all comes down to function. So whenever we're assessing patients in a diagnostic visit for memory impairment, it's really important to document really how they're performing on function. There are lots of different tools that you could use to try to help give yourself reminders of the things to ask, but it all boils down to ask about the ADLs, ask about the IADLs, and really see how this is affecting them. What I find in particular with patients Patients with really mild diseases, that the, t- the, pl- the things that we start to see them having the most difficulty with early on are the most complex of the IADLs. So, you know, they're probably able to prepare a meal okay, but, you know, managing your taxes on your own, that may be a little bit more difficult for you. So I find myself frequently asking in particular about how are they managing finances and how are they managing their medications, especially if they're like most of my patients, they've got a lot of polypharmacy and uh, 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 often you start to really see their cognitive problems start to come out with figuring out how they're managing their meds, how often they're missing doses, how often they're calling in early refills because they've forgotten if they've taken a dose and they double up, etc., um, step four is uh, that um, assuming that you have diagnosed dementia, you have to formally stage the dementia as part of the CACP requirements. There are lots of different tools that we have out there for formal staging. One of the more common ones that we have is something called the FAST scale, F-A-S-T. It's displayed here. It's a one to seven point scale of um, Uh, how impaired you are with regard to dementia from a functional standpoint. It's a nice tool because of that, because it really focuses on the function and kind of what matters to the patient. It is a little bit idealistic. It really only applies to late onset Alzheimer's disease, Um, but it is also the one that CMS uses for hospice eligibility criteria. So we frequently see providers using the fast scale because it helps us know kind of where on the spectrum the patient is and in terms of mild, moderate to severe a lot more than say a score on a cognitive test can do. There are other uh, functional uh, um, assessments for dementia out there that you can use, but you have to use some type of formal staging tool, such as the fast scale uh, as part of the CACP requirements. A more useful stu- tool that won't count for CACP, but is something worth at least knowing about, is this thing called the GEMS model. This is a model that was created by an occupational therapist by the name of Teepa Snow. And as opposed to all the other functional assessment tools for dementia, what this model does is it really dives deep into not what the patient can't do, but what they can do. And this is one of the tools that I find the most useful in my clinical practice, because what it does is it explains the things that patients have difficulty with and the things that they can do well at different stages of dementia. Um, And it can be used to help educate caregivers on how to better interact with patients at various stages, what will maybe work better for behavioral redirection if somebody's stuck on a perseverating uh, issue, for instance, or if they're not responding uh, verbally to you how can you try to get some response and understanding with them Um, so it's another useful uh, tool to think about in terms of uh, functional assessment that could actually help your patients Um, The fifth step, and probably the most important for me as a geriatrician in the CACP, is to reconcile and review high-risk medications. And there are lots of tools out there to help you with this. Personally, the thing that I find the most useful in my day-to-day clinical practice when I'm reviewing high-risk medications is this thing called the Anticholinergic Burden Index. There's a lot of information on this slide. I put it here mainly so that you can look it up later and reference it. But I find myself referencing this chart on a day-to-day basis uh, with my patients because what we know is that when we're talking about cognition you know polypharmacy is bad for it but the things that are the worst in terms of medications for cognition are the ones that have anticholinergic action. Because anything that blocks acetylcholine is gonna block the action of the hippocampus, and that's gonna interfere with our uh, cognitive abilities. And so anything we can do to lessen anticholinergic burden is gonna be to the benefit of the patient. And there's a lot of pills that we know that clearly have anticholinergic action, the antimuscarinics for urinary incontinence, Benadryl, of course, and the other antihistamines. But there are a lot of medications that we don't realize have anticholinergic burden that actually do. If you look in the ACB score of one category, uh, which is drugs that have 20 to 40% of the uh, anticholinergic action when compared to atropine in vitro, so by themselves not very anticholinergic but have a little bit, you'll see pretty much every cardiovascular medication available. There's um, uh, diuretics on there such as furosemide. There's blood pressure meds such as ACE inhibitors, metoprolol, warfarin's on there. Um, So by themselves, they shouldn't cause problems. But say you've got heart failure and uh, AFib, already you're going to have an ACB score of five. Doesn't mean we should stop those meds, but it means we may want to think twice about adding uh, tolteridine, for example, for urinary incontinence, because that may be the straw that broke the camel's back and pushed you over the limit. Trying to keep the ACB score as low as possible Um, is of high benefit to the patients. And so when we're talking about high-risk medication review, from a cognitive standpoint, these are really the most important drugs to think about. Um, continuing on, we're halfway there. Um, step six of the CACP is to evaluate for neuropsychiatric and behavioral symptoms. There are lots of different ways to do this. Um, there are tools out there that you can use that, uh, help and technically count such as the NPIQ or the PHQ-9 or the geriatric depression scale, uh, short form. Um, technically using one of these tools is enough to say that you've checked the box for evaluating neuropsychiatric and behavioral symptoms. But from my standpoint, you know, the thing that matters most is really asking about neuropsychiatric and behavioral symptoms. They're very common in dementia, especially as you reach the more moderate stages. Um, And if you're seeing those symptoms in the more mild stages, then it makes something like Alzheimer's disease less likely and one of the more atypical dementias more likely. But these are the things that can really affect your patients the most and cause the most functional distress, cause the most distress for families and lead to things like institutionalization. And so identifying these things early and doing what we can to lessen neuropsychiatric and behavioral symptoms is key for dementia care. And so it's a good thing that it was included in uh, the uh, CACP assessment as a requirement. In addition to that, uh, the CACP also requires that we evaluate a patient's safety. Uh, The patient and the caregiver should both be asked safety screening questions, and there are a lot of things that we worry about with regard to the safety of a patient uh, with dementia. Obviously, we all remember from medical school, if you leave the stove on, you got dementia. It doesn't necessarily happen. Um, You know, I still remember uh, my first week after uh, my uh, kid was born, I left the stove on twice. doesn't mean I have dementia. I was just sleep-deprived. But... It's a very real problem with patients with cognitive impairment. Um, uh, Understanding how they're taking medications, are they taking them safely, asking questions about that, uh, um, figuring out if they're using a pill box, how they actually sort their pill box, things like that are important. Driving is, of course, important to talk about, and we'll discuss that a little bit more later. Um, Wandering and getting lost is another major one, and firearms uh, is a huge one, um, kind of nationwide. uh, But It's it's every day we see stories in the news of uh, patients with dementia that discharge firearms out of uh, fear. So making sure that firearms, if they're present in the home, are locked up uh, um, is important. So the CACP does require that we ask about safety screening questions and that we document that we've discussed them. Uh, In addition, step eight is to identify social supports, um, identify who is the caregiver, and ask the questions of are they willing to provide care, and if they aren't, figuring out ways of who is going to care for these patients. Um, Especially if you've identified early, that's key, because if you're early in disease, most likely the patient still has decision-making capacity, and you could go down step one of establishing legal responsibility, creating legal documents of durable powers of attorney, et cetera. Unfortunately, we often find that we miss the mark on that, and patients get to the moderate to severe stages before we detect disease, and then suddenly it becomes a question of who's going to make decisions for this patient, who legally can access finances for this patient, et cetera. It's a lot easier to do that early on in disease, and hence why early detection is so important. Um, when we're talking about caregivers, uh, one thing that's really important to is to talk to them about resources. Um, and this is a challenging prompt because we don't always know what the resources are in our community um, uh, as providers, nor do we even have the time to discuss it. So identifying a few that are useful in your uh, uh, home city uh, is extremely important um, to be able to give your patients at least a starting point of where they could go to start to get information on how to be a caregiver somebody, for somebody with dementia. Um, there are lots of organizations that have information on this. In San Diego, we've got a group called Champions for Health um, that has done a lot of uh, tabulating of uh, available resources: um, Alzheimer's San Diego, uh, Alzheimer's Association, Southern Caregiver Resource Centers, or other great opera uh, organizations. But identifying a few, or even better, finding a social worker into your clinic can really help with this. But discussing this is important as well for the CACP. Step nine of the CACP, we're almost there, is to uh, develop uh, an advanced care plan or update, revise, or review it. Uh, Making sure that we discuss uh, advanced care, end-of-life planning, making sure that we've and detected in the early pa- early diseases uh, um, patients that don't have advanced care planning and uh, directing them to uh, seek things such as power of attorneys. Um, it also gives a chance uh, to start talking about you know eventually dementia is a terminal diagnosis and can start. Uh, Uh, the conversation of what to do when things get advanced. You know, when should we be considering things like palliative care or hospice? Because we do find that it's not as easily identifiable as in uh, more concrete diseases such as cancer. And we frequently do see dementia patients referred too late to hospice. And so uh, um, identifying that's important. And then the last step is to prepare a written care plan. Um, So to take all this stuff that you've talked about in your multiple hours (laughs) of visits with the patient and collate it into a a written plan, both for documentation purposes as well as for an actionable plan for the patients of what steps they need to take next, um, addressing all of these different uh, um, pieces of information. Um, In terms of documenting the written care plan, it is worthwhile considering using a standardized template um, just to make things easy on yourself and avoid having to retype the same thing a million times. Um, The downloadable practice aid that we have has some examples of what those templates can look like, but of course individualizing it to your own practice and making it as easy for yourself as possible is important. Um, The only way you could do that is by looking at some examples, so we have some for you. Um, To move back to our case, um, so since Mr. Sandoval failed his uh, screening visit, uh, we did have him come back in for a cognitive assessment and care plan visit. We conducted a MOCA, which showed that he had a score of 22 out of 30 um, with prominent deficits in the visuospatial executive section, a zero out of five on delayed recall. But he did recall some of the words with multiple choice cues. Um, it, we asked Mr. Sandoval and his daughter to fill out some questionnaires about his dementia syndromes, neuropsychiatric symptoms, and safety concerns. And those questionnaires, ultimately uh, coupled with the MoCA um, and his rate of decline, reveal that he does seem like he has a mild neurocognitive or mild dementia syndrome, a major neurocognitive disorder, mild in etiology. Um, it is of note that he has been experiencing some depression, anxiety, irritability lately, but there's no safety concerns at the home. So we decide to order labs and a brain MRI to gain some more insight into the etiology of his mild dementia. Um, And with that, you might have noticed that we haven't talked about labs or brain imaging at all in the cognitive assessment and care plan, and it's because they aren't necessary for it. Because again, you don't need those to make a diagnosis of dementia. They're not necessary nor sufficient for making the diagnosis. There are times when they could be useful, though, and we'll talk about why in just a few minutes. In terms of the billing, we've got the information here on uh, the CPT. It gets complicated, so please look at the slide uh, um, at your leisure. Uh, but again it's a separate CPT code. It can't be billed on the same day as a office visit uh, 99213 or whatever, um, but it, uh, uh, it can be billed uh, um, separate and it can be billed separately from the annual wellness visit what are the next steps now that we've diagnosed dementia now that we've gone through all of the complex steps that are necessary in terms of making a diagnostic visit what do we do about it all Um, so uh, in terms of the next steps my next steps usually is to get some additional uh, evaluation because all that we talked about is enough to make the diagnosis of major neurocognitive disorder but it's not enough to then subclassify into what dementia it likely is. Um you know, with an adequate history and an adequate MOCA, you could usually say your best guess of what it is. It seems like it's probably going to be Alzheimer's disease, or it seems like it's more likely vascular disease. Um, and there's a way to build for that. You say that it's major, neurocog- major neurocognitive disorder due to possible Alzheimer's disease. In order to move from possible to probable, which is the most specific diagnosis we can make without an autopsy, um, we have to get some additional testing to really get to the root of what the underlying cause most likely is. And that's what the additional tests, the labs, the imaging, et cetera, is useful for. Um, personally, my, uh, my mo- the thing that I find the most beneficial is neuropsychologic testing, it's also often the hardest to get. Um, you know, Even at UCSD where we have a lot of neuropsychologists, uh, we've got a year and a half wait list right now in our memory disorders clinic because we're just so inundated with uh, patients. But if you can get it, great. Because that's the thing that's the most diagnostic in terms of really being able to differentiate between dementia subtypes. Barring that, um, uh, biomarkers or biomarker equivalents can help with making a diagnosis. Um, my preferred option is to do something called a volumetric brain MRI, um, which is counted as a biomarker equivalent for Alzheimer's disease. It gives you the brain MRI to help rule in or out risk of stroke or vascular uh, disease, but it also gives you a more specific look at the volume of different brain structures because you know with a regular MRI, we can only look uh, at a qualitative assessment of brain volume. But the volumetric gives us a quantitative assessment of what different brain structures' volumes are. And we can look specifically at the hippocampus and see is there asymmetric hippocampal atrophy uh, compared to the rest of the brain, which could be indicative of something like Alzheimer's disease. And that's counted actually as a biomarker equivalent for Alzheimer's disease. Um, and uh, in terms of uh, diagnosis, if we have some, this information, we can usually go on to, this is major neurocognitive disorder, probable due to Alzheimer's disease. But if we see any atypical signs, Parkinsonism, hallucinations, aphasia, early onset disease, meaning below, before the age of 60, rapid progression, uh, fluctuations in mentation, severe depression, um, things like that, those are the times that we recommend considering referral to a neurologist or or a geriatrician or a geropsychiatrist um, to really kind of dig deep into what we think the underlying etiology is here. Um In terms of once a diagnosis is made, it's important to disclose that diagnosis. And disclosure is difficult in a disease like this. The most important thing there is that there is a need for empathy. We need to take the time to listen. And so it's always important when we can to allow for longer visits to do this and to schedule regular check-ins to try to give the time that is necessary for it. Um, You know, uh, typically I uh, recommend for a diagnostic visit to... uh, allocate an hour for it Um, and if you can't allocate an hour then to fragment it and do a diagnostic visit first and then see them back for disclosure of diagnosis alone Um, because it really does take that time to sit down and talk about what does this mean where do we go from here what are the things that I need to look out for what are the things that are going to be a concern to me in the future how do I access resources to help with all of this and the only way we could discuss that is really by taking the time five critical issues that are recommended to discuss at the time of diagnosis is, you know, first, what the diagnosis is, obviously. Um, the second is medication options, as well as the adverse effects of those medications. Third is uh, issues surrounding driving, managing finances, legal issues, etc. cetera. Uh, fourth is uh, home safety. And then fifth is the and in my opinion, the most important is the need to have a caregiver with the individual. You know, I always recommend if there's any form of cognitive impairment, be it mild, be it subjective um, and no real problem, or be it a major cognitive disorder, it's very important to have a caregiver at every visit, um, uh, to have that external brain to really be able to retain the information of what's talked about we can't have a dementia talk without at least a mention of medications, but it is beyond the scope of this talk to talk too much about it, but it is important in the cognitive assessment and care plan to say that we've created a treatment plan for the patient. So it's important to discuss medications with the patient. There are a few different medications that are available for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Um, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, mementine or the NMDA receptor antagonist, as well as the newer, uh, anti-amyloid monoclonal antibodies. Um, Uh, Unfortunately, the medication's benefits are pretty small, but the risks are there. You know, uh, 20% of people started on Dinepazil will develop GI upset, which you think, eh, you're a little nauseous, but at least it's helping your memory, right? But later in disease, that could lead to things like avoidance of PO, which can lead to malnutrition, which leads to functional decline, which leads to earlier enrollment in hospice. Um, Slippery slope argument there, but uh, we see it. Um, in clinical practice um, or with the anti-amyloid therapies they may have statistical benefit but they have increased risk of things called aria so there's risks associated with every drug and with the geriatrician we always think about balancing the benefits of a drug with the risks but we need to discuss the drugs with the patients and come up with informed decision making of what's right for them. What really works and the thing that I spend the most of my time talking about with patients is really the non-pharmacologic interventions, maintaining physical activity, eating a healthy diet. A single diet doesn't actually help. There hasn't been one that's been shown to be beneficial, but a balanced and most importantly a full diet is important. Um, Malnutrition is really the enemy of dementia. Um, And so making sure the patient is eating is really key there. Uh, physical, uh, or in addition to physical activity, mental activity. The more mentally active we are, the better off our brain tends to be, the higher cognitive reserve that we have. And there's no time that's too late to start building that cognitive reserve. Um, A lot of people think mental exercise means brain games. It doesn't. What mental exercise means is working through complex problems. Going to lectures such as this is mental exercise. You're all reducing your risk of dementia by being here. Um, But learning new things, forcing your brain to work through new problems is really what helps. If we do brain games over again, we'll do better at the brain games as time goes by, but they're too simplistic of tasks to really form new neural connections. So it's kind of like a rat in a maze. It does the maze enough times, it learns the maze. Do we then say the rat has gained intelligence? No, it's a learned pattern behavior and that's what memory the brain games really do. So I tend not to talk too much about brain games with my patients, and instead encourage them, "Get a hobby." And more, and if you're going to get a hobby get one that involves other people because social engagement really helps. That's what we've found with things like adult daycare programs is that patients in there tend to enter into nursing homes later and it's because they are doing so much socially with others that it's kind of forming peer networks, forming these external brains that can help them accommodate for their deficits as well as maintaining social graces. You know, a lot of the things that re- lead to patients with dementia entering into nursing homes is that they start being inappropriate. They start, uh, losing those social graces and upsetting people. And they don't want to deal with that. And so if we can maintain a social network, that can help. Um, So I always say the Dr. Neal method for preventing dementia is exercise and get a hobby. Um, It is important uh, when we're talking about dementia to uh, talk about driving with the patients. Um, Each state uh, has different laws in terms of what to do for uh, dementia and driving, so it's important to know your state law um, and to look into it in terms of what your requirements for reporting are. Um, uh, But we know that driving in dementia is dangerous, and we do not recommend it. Um, in terms of clinician resources, we also already talked about this to some degree. I will mention again the Dementia Care Aware program is really phenomenal in terms of resources for, for providers of learning about how to do screening visits in much greater detail than we were able to talk about today. Um, and uh, they have lots of uh, free information and webinars on their website that you can access for that. Similarly, in San Diego, through Champions for Health, we have a, a project called the Alzheimer's Project. Um, which creates a uh, physician guideline for screening, evaluation, and management of uh, Alzheimer's disease and the related dementias. And uh, if you go onto their website, we have a Uh, handout. um, That's a a good hundred-some-odd page, uh, basically textbook, talking about all of these things that we discussed today in greater detail of how to do it. Um, uh, That's peer-reviewed and updated every uh, two years or so uh, um, for the most up-to-date information, um, as well as a lot of online webinars talking in greater detail about things like accessing caregiver resources, uh, discussing advanced care planning, etc. And uh, with that, we have a couple minutes remaining for some questions from the audience. So thank you so much for listening to us today and for uh, making it through uh, the whirlwind of information.
1: Yeah, deep breath, Ian. That was really (laughs) impressive. I just want to highlight a couple of things you said just in terms of summarizing a little bit. I know that was a ton of information. I think a really big take home, I know that I've... Finally gotten comfortable with now after about 10 years of doing a lot of dementia assessments is this fact that we can really recognize a clinical syndrome. We can recognize it a lot earlier and help start people to get people on a path to understand what might be causing it. And all along doing a lot to really support brain health and reducing uh, risk of progression or the speed of progression. I think I've also seen a separate approach. So obviously Dr. Neal feels very, very comfortable, you know, diagnosing and disclosing. I've also often seen among many of my colleagues in primary care who I get to like work back and forth on the consultative level of dementia acknowledge the syndrome, but say I don't really feel like the medical or psychiatric piece of this or substance use disorder piece of this has been totally worked out. And that's okay, like I just want to point out it's really okay to take the time. Time is also a huge diagnostic factor if this is a neurodegenerative disease, it's going to progress. And that is the benefit, the wonderful benefit of being in primary care and having these longitudinal relationships. We can be with them all along the way and it will help us understand better what's going on. So I just wanna empower you to start to have the early conversations about what you're noticing and what that means for workup and how you're gonna address care plan and you know, walk through this very um, intensive next steps, but also that um, I think I see a lot of people also being clear about what they're seeing and hedging a little while longer on the diagnosis until they feel they have the imaging or some labs that may help for them really round out that medical and psychiatric piece. Um, but I think we really tried to give you as many tools as possible to go forward. And now I'm going to um, do my best to answer, to bring some questions forward. One issue is different languages. And Ian, I don't know if you have any recommendations about how you approach... So I know my population is multilingual. I see folks for whom I'm usually language discordant.
0: Do you have any recommendations? Yeah, it's very true. And it's... uh... Uh, it's part of the reason why we see so much uh, discrepancy um, in minority populations in terms of delayed diagnosis is that, you know, language barrier is real and there are not enough medical translators out there to really help with things. Um, We do find that cognitive testing especially is uh, much more difficult in non-English language speakers. Um, For instance, you know, it's not valid to do neuropsychologic testing if you don't speak the language language of the uh, neuropsychologist. Um, You know, In San Diego, we really only have neuropsych testing for Spanish-speaking patients and for English-speaking patients, and there really aren't any neuropsychologists to do it in other languages, which really hampers our ability to diagnose. Um, There are cognitive test variants um, that allow you to do the cognitive test in different languages. For instance, the MOCA has 30 different languages that it's available in. The difficulty there is that there are lots of different differences amongst uh, uh, different regional dialects of the language that may make it difficult. Not to mention, all it is doing is translating the questions, and these questions were validated in a Caucasian, American, and British uh, population. And so they aren't as relevant um, in different languages. You know, no ifs, ands, or buts on the uh, uh, MMSE doesn't even translate into a lot of other languages. And so there's not a lot of validity of doing the cognitive tests in other languages.
1: The, I think that we, we do the best we can and we use the tools we can. And I would say Dementia careware does have some resources. And um, I'm going to be bold and invite you to contact me if this is a major issue in your practice. Um, I'm, my email is at UCSF. We are over time. Um, I just really want to thank you for your attention and um, for being here this evening. I hope we can be a resource to you and that the practice aids can uh, be useful in your practice. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time.
0: This activity is certified by PVI, Peer Review Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash XUM860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.